Sustainability, the Potsdam Dialogues, science for a safe tomorrow. We have existential risks more and more for many people in the world. Society and nature absolutely are already feeling the impacts of climate change. This isn't something that's off mid-century. It's, it's here. It's in the 2020s. Smallholder farmers are facing these existential risks, the bitter taste of loss and damage. Loss and damage. Two rather abstract words, I feel, that describe a scenario where the impacts of climate change are so bad that the damage is irreversible, so that countries, communities and ecosystems cannot adapt anymore. I'm sure most of you have at least heard of the concept in the past few weeks, as it was really big in the COP27 coverage. And so the question now is, who actually supports countries that already suffer from extreme events like droughts or floods due to climate change? What processes are in place, if any, and how can science support? To get a bit of a better understanding what's at stake... I'm glad we have two great guests today here at this end-of-the-year sustainability podcast edition. Coco Warner is currently still working at the Secretariat to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, what most people know as UNFCCC. And I'm saying still because as of next week, mid-December, so to say, Coco will take on a new position outside UNFCCC. But for the time being, when we are recording this podcast right now, Coco is still with UNFCCC. And yeah, Coco, why don't you tell us a bit about the UNFCCC Secretariat and your work there? Great, thanks. What I work on is bringing the human face of climate change to this big world of global climate policy. We work with indigenous peoples, We work with people dealing with migration and displacement. Um, we work with scientists. Um, so we work with all of these different stakeholders to try and figure out um, what do countries need to know in order to scale up adaptation action. Perfect. So from Coco's technical and negotiating side, we're going to jump over now to the science side. I'm also very glad that Christoph Gornert joins us today. He's an agricultural scientist and leader of the working group Adaptation in Agricultural Systems at PIC. So that means basically he looks at what does climate change do to small farmers. So how can and how must they adapt when growing coffee beans, for example. So everybody who likes their morning cup of coffee, this is going to be very interesting for you. So welcome, Christoph. And yeah, please tell us a bit more about your research. Yeah, thank you very much. And thanks also for the invitation. We are working a lot also on the interplay or how to implement adaptation in the global south. What are barriers that adaptation is so far not implemented enough? And what could we make better with respect to adaptation? But I think more and more we are coming to the point that also adaptation has certain limits also with ongoing climate change. And here I think we are also talking more and more about the effect of loss and damages. Uh, great, Christoph. You're jumping right into the debate that I wanted to get your views on loss and damage. I think this immediately rings a bell about the horrible Pakistan flood damages and the one, if not the only key outcome of COP27, mainly this loss and damage fund that was established. So, um, Coco, you are an expert when it comes to loss and damage. Um, what's your take on this fund? 
Um, I'm going to, I'll be the optimistic one, Christoph, you can maybe provide your additional um, views, but there's a lot of media attention on a fund, which is part of this decision. The part that I find even more exciting is the potential for shifts, those 1% shifts in the way that our world works, in the way that the finance system works. There were prime ministers talking about um, innovative tools. Maybe some prime ministers were talking about um, new arrangements for debt. Some were talking about um, different domestic tools that can be used to help finance some of these um, climate change impacts. Some are domestic, some are international, some are regional. They're all geared towards stability. And what's going to be important in this next year is to see how do ministers talk about that? How do the heads of agencies like the regional development banks or the world development banks, et cetera, how do they actually think about how we can change our systems um, to, to chart that new course towards stability in the face of climate change? Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Coco, also for, for giving this good overview. I think we had a good debate on loss and damages and how they could be addressed. And we have, you mentioned this already, the fund established. That's very important. I think there's a still not very concrete we still have to formalize this better on how we distribute the, the budget how we address loss and damages correctly but i think we are we are moving this is good and we are moving in the right direction this is even better so and but i think we have to accelerate our speed uh, which, which we move i think this is also important and i think the the german government they have launched the global shield with 170 million euros That's very good. I think this is goes exactly in the right direction of addressing loss and damages, acknowledging that they are there and also talking about compensation. I think this is very important, not only acknowledging loss and damage, but really talking about compensation mechanisms. We also know, of course, that 170 million euros will not be enough to address fully loss and damages. We only give you one number when we talk about the floods, which we have seen in Pakistan, they have caused losses of 50 billion US dollars and another 15 billion on, on losses. So for a single event. And and I guess we have to go deeper in this and yeah, try to address this more and more. And I think I also wanted to to take the point what Coco took in addressing this on all levels. I think often loss and damage is associated with small island states and sea level rise. That's very important. But we see also in many other sectors, loss and damages. And the agriculture sector is, is really key on this, uh, seeing also their farmers investing more in soils, being able to reduce the risks of climate change for them, having very concrete measures like agroforestry, like agroecology. This is These are measures which could also bring farmers to a different level to cope better with the risks of climate change. Okay, so what I take away here is that you are both cautiously optimistic when it comes to COP27 and the results, which is great to hear, to be honest, because um, 2022 did not seem like such an optimistic year with the ongoing pandemic, with the horrible Russian war of aggression, the energy crisis, inflation. Um, it almost seemed like climate topic took a bit of a backseat, if I can say that. And even though we had more than enough extreme events this year, you know, with the long-lasting heat, burning forests in Europe, parts of Africa facing the worst drought and food crisis ever. So if you look back at the last few months, at the, the, the year, where do we stand now? What's your assessment, Christoph? 
Sure, I guess that's we are seeing more and more the effects of of climate change. So climate change is already affecting our daily life, and I think this is what we have to acknowledge and where we have to invest also more and more. I think when you have just just named all the crises which we have, and on the other hand. It's also so important not to lose track to get ambitions high with respect to addressing climate change, having our mitigation goals high. But also, it's more and more important to invest in adaptation because we see already the effects so strongly. And we also see that there are limits which already with one degree or 1.2 degrees of warming, we cannot address all this what happens with climate change anymore. And I think here we also have to find new mechanisms in place to yeah, address these losses and damages which occur more and more in our world. Yeah, thanks, Julian and Christoph. Just adding on both to that, I think that that issue of emissions are higher than ever and there's a trajectory for human action. And Christoph, you've you've mentioned from that biophysical disruption perspective that society and nature absolutely are already feeling the impacts of climate change. This isn't something that's off mid-century. It's it's here. It's in the 2020s. Um, it's in our lives and certainly our children's lives. And so for all of us, the question is: all right, well, what are we going to do differently? What are we going to do differently on the mitigation side? That would, of course, be our energy systems, our agricultural systems, um, the way that we produce food, the types of uh, the way that we nutrify ourselves. I think I just made up a word. <laughs> no, no, um, that's great. Um, can you give us an example of what we are already doing differently, like where we achieved a positive change? If you think about agriculture and adaptation, here's an example of the things that can bring big change, but require these 1% shifts in what we actually do now. There's a growing number of farmers across the world who are doing regenerative agriculture. And I'll name Justica, I'm not a farmer or a rancher, obviously, but there are a couple of practices that I can describe that are really different, but they don't require us to turn our world on its head right now, but they're different. So for example, They're farmers from North Dakota to Namibia, to India, to places farther, farther east that have changed the attachment on their tractors if they use tractors. So instead of tilling the soil, um, of course, they level the soil because you need that to get even water distribution. But they have attachments on their tractors or they do it in other means and they poke uh, seeds into the soil rather than disturbing the soil. For you and me as city people, we don't understand what that means, but the difference is it maintains healthy soil. And that is a huge mitigation potential. I would like to come back one more time to the loss and damage debate quickly. So was this a major moment in 2022 or were there other highlights, important changes that were initiated to address the climate crisis to your mind? Definitely the conversation about funding arrangements for loss and damage were a highlight. 30 years, the narrative has been, no, 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 no. If we think about climate change impacts, then we just can't do that because it's some, I don't know what, admission of defeat. But we are here now in 2022. We're barreling towards the end of this decade 
when if we if we don't make those changes in a timely way, we'll overshoot 1.5 degrees. And the question is, how do we bring ourselves back to a stable temperature? Um, and to have that breakthrough decision, and also for fairly widespread across the region of the world, fairly widespread acceptance that, yeah, actually, finance and stability need to be part of the conversation. The fact that we accept that, of course, there are nuances and different views. I think that tells us where we are in the world. And the upside is that there's a willingness to cooperate and to keep coming to the table. And it's an absolute shift in gears. And I think it will flavor and shape the coming decade that we continue to work through together. Okay. Shifting gears sounds definitely great. Um, governments of the world seem to be ready to make changes, to negotiate, at least from Coco's more policy-driven point of view. Christoph, I would think you might have something to add from your perspective. Yeah, definitely. I agree what what Coco said. This is very important and we need this transformational shift so much, but we need this also on all levels. I think also Coco has linked to this. Of course, the governmental level plays an important role, but we have to include the society. We have to include the businesses and, and all have to take their part. I think otherwise we cannot talk about a transformational shift if we only see this on a national level or in, in international negotiations. I think we really have to take the smallholder farmers into into this and we have to, to work with them and we also need local perspectives we need local answers to address the climate crisis and i think that's that's very important i think we will come more and more to these that we have existential risks more and more for many people in the world and the, the number of people facing these existential and in many cases also non-reversible risks they are increasing more and more every day. And I think we need local solutions where people could say, okay, I'm I'm taking this, I'm a farmer on, on in Ethiopia on a plot and I wanted to make a change. And I'm now working with agroforestry, with agroecology, improving my soil, but also in the cities, people changing their consumptions. And I think everyone could, could take its part and, This is very important. So we also have the decision in our hands when we decide for a coffee every morning. Oh, wait a second. So what does my cup of coffee have to do with climate change? Coffee is a very sensitive crop. It's directly affected by climate change. But we also see more and more that smallholder farmers are facing these existential risks and they cannot longer stay on, on their ground. They have to migrate. They are losing their homelands and they are losing productive assets. And I think this is nothing what could be just built back after after a certain time. So once an asset or once that productive land is lost, you could not establish this somewhere else because then often you don't have the knowledge, you don't have the facilities, you don't have the value chain. And this makes something, this reduces for us the quality of the coffee, but for the farmers, it is a loss of lives. It's a loss of livelihoods. Yeah, ironically, you will also taste this with your every morning cup because the quality goes down, goes down further because they are not more productive land which where coffee can be grown. And this will give the coffee some bitter taste. So in the end, the bitter taste of loss and damage. Oh, wow. I think drinking coffee in the morning might never be the same. 
Um, so now from promising global climate politics at COP27 to local Ethiopian smallholder farmers and their existential risks and the bitter taste of loss and damage, I'm just very bluntly jumping to the last question for today. Looking ahead, will 2023 be a decisive year when it comes to climate action? Coco? And I'm, I'm nodding my head vigorously. Absolutely. Um, first of all, for listeners, you may, if you're following uh, global climate policy or international climate policy, you'll know that it is a process. And, uh, I w and the reason I say that is I was listening to a youth um, advocate at COP27 kind of say, we don't need another COP. And then, of course, since I'm a secretary person, I'm like, oh, but we actually do. We need lots of COPs in the future because it's a process of countries coming together along with all of these specialists, academics, researchers, practitioners, every sector you can imagine. We all need to convene. It doesn't have to be the way that we do it now, but it's really important that people convene, say what they're doing, talk about the results, recommend decide, coordinate, and keep going. Um, and we need that in an organized process. So with that said, 2023 is a watershed year because of the first global stock take of the Paris Agreement. For those of you who are going to be following climate policy even more because of the speech that I just gave about how great climate policy is, um, you'll know that The Paris Agreement has two five-year cycles. Every five years, all of the countries come together and assess collectively, are we on track? Are we keeping global temperatures well below two degrees and so much the better if it's below 1.5 degrees? And to make sure that countries are making those real changes in what they're doing so that society can, can enjoy stability and be safe. And that's what the stock take is about. And that's culminating this year. Great. So another COP, global stock take. What else is in the pot for 2023, Christoph? To keep the Paris Agreement, I think it's important that we accelerate our ambitions. We have also the pledges we have made. We have to fulfill them. I think this is also very important so that they are not lacking behind. And we are still too slow, I think, to... Yeah, to keep the Paris Agreement alive. And I think that's very important. We need all hands. Therefore, we need the society. We need the business. But we also need the policy to make the decision. And we, we cannot wait for the next COP. So we, we need all the tiny steps in between. Everyone is invited to take its part. We also have to get faster with the adaptation financing. I think this is also something what is really lacking behind. We also see that there is a much higher need for financing adaptation than it is right now on the agenda. And we also see that there's there are also limits of adaptation where adaptation does not work anymore. And we also have problems with disaster risk reduction to addressing all these losses which we have. And I think therefore we need the compensation debate more on our agenda and we need the, the fund which is established, but we need them concrete with ideas, with mechanisms and with funding schemes really concrete defined. And I think this is our homework for the next year. You've been listening to Sustainability, 
the Potsdam Dialogues. Science for a safe tomorrow.